You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, God reassures Abram. First, we are given a time frame. After this. After what? After the military victory which rescued Lot and his family, along with all the citizens of the cities of the plain, like Sodom and Gomorrah. This was when we were introduced to the king-priest of Salem, named Melchizedek. This time we are also told about the manner of God's appearance to Abram. The word of the Lord came to him in a vision in the evening, when the stars are out. In it he said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Here is a great promise. God is Abram's protector which he had just demonstrated with the military victory. He is also Abram's very great reward. The giver is himself the gift. There is nothing better. He has not lost out by refusing the spoils of war from the king of Sodom. God also tells him not to fear, because it must have been a terrifying sight to see. But Abram remembers what God had promised him several years earlier, land, descendants, and blessing. This is nagging at him, so he feels bold enough to ask how this can be. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Since he had no children, he had planned to pass on his riches to a faithful steward named Eliezer of Damascus in Syria. As a side note, we're told elsewhere that some of the ancestors of the Jews were Syrians, like Laban and Jacob. So this was a well-known Mesopotamian custom. Abram seems resigned to this situation. His question, what will you give me, changes to, you have not given me. He comes close to blaming God, saying, You have given me no children, because he knows God controls all these things. He just called him Sovereign Lord. God's time frame is so different from ours. Abram probably feels it's been a long time since he left Ur of the Chaldeans. His life may be near the end, and it's too late for the promises to be fulfilled. But God sees all of redemptive history with millions of Abram's physical and spiritual descendants. Abram had been promised descendants. He didn't even have one child. He had been promised land. He owned not one acre. No part of this promise seemed possible. Sarai was barren, they were both old, and the land was already inhabited. Before God confirmed how Abram's family would grow from his own body, Abram thought of how he could make it happen. His servant would inherit. But the Lord rejects Abram's human solution. God tells him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God's plan for us is always better than anything we could imagine. Then God took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Both sand and stars are images God uses to describe how innumerable his descendants will be. 
Living in a large city like Toronto, where the city lights obscure the stars, except for the Big and Little Dipper, you forget how many stars are in the sky. But there are billions of stars, even in our own galaxy, let alone outside of it. In fact, it's estimated that there are 10 to the 24th stars in the known universe. That's 10 with 24 zeros after it. The Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans 4.18 to show that at this point, Abram believed against all hope in the promises of God. Then we see the response of faith. God said it, so Abram believed it. We are told Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And this idea is also applied to Phineas in Psalm 106, 30 and 31. This idea of crediting something to someone is called imputation. And this is a bookkeeping term. Abram's faith was deposited into his account as righteousness. Faith was the written check, and righteousness was the actual money. God deposited it. This was not a paycheck for anything Abram had done. We are bankrupt spiritually. Our account is in the red. We owe God more than we can pay, and if he did not credit our account with the righteousness of Christ, we would have no hope and would have to pay for our own sins. But thank God he has. Verses 7 through 21, God confirms his covenant with Abram. God had just reminded him of one aspect of the covenant we first learned about in chapter 12, descendants. Now he again promises the land to Abram, uh, which he is standing on. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And this is a prototype exodus which will occur when his descendants are brought out of Egypt by God to come to the land of Canaan. They will also take possession of the land, even though other nations occupy it. And it will be his and theirs because God gives it to them, and it is a very specific area. We already saw that Abram believed what God said, but he asked for some assurance. Abram asks, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? God doesn't just answer, because I said so, that's why. He condescends to reassure Abram by initiating a covenant of the type with which Abram would be, have been familiar. It's called cutting a covenant because of what follows. God tells Abram to bring um, him a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram does so and cuts the animals in two and arranges the halves opposite each other. But the birds were not cut in half. They were placed one on either side. And since there was the scent of the blood of carrion, birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, so Abram had to drive them away. It's these small details that remind us that these are descriptions of true events. <clears throat> then to emphasize his human frailty and to prevent him from trying to do anything to contribute to the covenant, God causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. It's during this time that God gives him a glimpse of the hardship of his future descendants, of which he currently has not a one. But this is sure because God said so. He says, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, 
and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there is much here. First, God says it is certain, and we know from the history of the nation of Israel that this is exactly what happens. Some who choose to disbelieve the Bible take any prophecies made hundreds of years before the event and just dismiss it out of hand as having been prophesied after the fact. And this is done with no evidence to support the accusation. The slavery in Egypt, although the country is not named, and the hardship of it are clear, clearly stated as a part of God's plan. And this shows us that he is in control of all events and allows even difficulties for his glory and our good, as we saw in the book of Job. While the Israelites will be enslaved and will suffer, yet they are still blessed while the Canaanites are under a curse. But this slavery is not the end of the story. God will punish this nation because although he allows it, they are still accountable for how they behaved. The ten plagues on Egypt were a horrific punishment, nearly destroying the nation completely. But even that was a mercy, as God would tell them in Exodus 9.15, that he could have destroyed them completely. Then they are promised that after this nation is punished, while they are still there, they will come out with great possessions. And this happened when God gave the Israelites favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. And they were happy to see them leave and gave them gifts of silver, gold, and clothing. Then God tells Abram that he will die at a good old age, which he did, dying at the age of 175. We are told they will return to Canaan in the fourth generation. Now a generation or lifespan is approximately 80 years, but back then people lived longer, so four generations were approximately 400 years and they will be in Egypt for 430 years before the Exodus. We learn this in Exodus 12, 40 and 41. So the reason they aren't allowed to just stay there in Canaan now and multiply relates to how God judges nations. He will judge Egypt, and he will judge the Amorites who lived in Canaan, but he won't do it yet because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That tells us that their sin was bad, but not to the point that God would yet bring judgment on the nation, like he would soon do to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Canaanites were known for wicked things like child sacrifice and many sexual sins. Leviticus 18, 24-28, after listing many sexual sins like adultery, incest, homosexuality, and bestiality, says, Do not defile yourself in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sins. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land... It will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. God tells them he is giving them the land, not because of their righteousness, but because of the wickedness of those nations. The conquest of the land would serve two purposes. 
the judgment of the Amorites, and the giving of the land to Israel. But God was warning that judgment was certain. When you consider that sins such as these are not only practiced in our country, but celebrated and promoted, we should be watching for the judgment that is sure to come. Sadly, many are heaping up their sins for the day of wrath, like 1 Thessalonians 2.16 and Romans 2.5 says. But, like the Amorites had 400 years of grace in which to repent, this is also our day of grace. Abram was given a glimpse of his future and that of his descendants. It's a different kind of mercy not to know every detail of what will befall us. Then we see something happening when the sun had set and darkness had fallen. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces of cut animals. This idea of fire and cloud for the presence of God will be repeated during the wilderness wanderings and the giving of the law. Also, when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, flames of fire appeared over each person's head. The cloud will be a symbol of God's presence during the dedication of the temple and the Mount of Transfiguration, and the fire will be God's response to the offerings of Gideon, Samson's parents, Elijah, and David. So the reason that God is moving between these slaughtered animals is to show that he is vowing to keep his covenant. This meant that the parties in the covenant affirmed that the same should happen to them if they did not keep the covenant. It was to be kept on pain of death. And usually, both parties to the covenant walked between the dead animals. Jeremiah 34:18 says, Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. So covenants were deadly serious. Also notice this one, unlike the Mosaic covenant, is a unilateral covenant. God initiated it. He decided on the terms. He didn't demand anything of Abram to ensure its fulfillment. And he will keep it because his character and his power will see it through. So this is called the Abrahamic covenant and we'll see the sign of the covenant in chapter 17. Then God reminds Abram of the promise of descendants and land and stipulates the border more specifically than in chapters uh, in chapter 13, uh, when he was told just to walk the land to claim it. He also mentions the ten nations that will be dispossessed so that they can obtain it. He says, to your descendants I give this land. So this is not allegorical. The whole book of Genesis reads as history and should be regarded as such. Though we are spiritually barren as Abram and Sarai were physically barren, we would have no hope if God hadn't promised to save us and confirmed it by the new covenant. This is not dependent on the strength of our faith, although we are required to have it, but on the strength of God's covenant. Think of a parent crossing the street with their toddler. It's not the strength of the child's grip on the parent that keeps the child safe, but the strength of the parent's grip on the child. That's the source of our assurance. Scarlet threads. So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? God called himself Abram's shield and very great reward. He is the same for us. Christ is our shield who stands between us and God and takes the punishment that is due to our sin. God tells Abram not to fear. 
Scripture tells us not to fear 365 times, one for each day. Jesus frequently told people not to be afraid. God promised Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He repeats this again in Genesis 22:17 and 26:4. Moses would remind God of this promise and he would relent from wiping them out after the golden calf incident. And just before they entered the promised land, Moses told them that God had fulfilled that promise and prayed that God would increase them a thousand times more. Believers are described as shining among unbelievers as stars in the sky. Moses also warned them that if they disobeyed, God would curse them. And you, who were as numerous as the stars in the sky, will be left but few in number, because you did not obey the Lord your God. Abram believed God's promise even when there was no evidence. The Apostle Paul uses this as an example of justification by faith apart from works. James 2.23 also quotes it, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So God demands righteousness, but because we fail, he accepts our faith in its place. Faith that admits its dependence on God and belief in his promises. This faith is credited to our account. Paul says this faith faith that Abram displayed was what made him the father of all who believe. This faith was imputed to his account. Abram didn't work for it, he just believed. And we are saved the same way. God does not impute or charge our sin to our account, but credits our faith in place of it. When God called Abram to leave Ur to go to Canaan, it was a prototype of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt which in turn was a type of our redemption from slavery to sin. This exodus of Abram, then the exodus of the Israelites, and then our exodus from slavery to sin, were all for a reason. God says he brought him out to give him this land as an inheritance. Israel is brought out of Egypt to bring them into Canaan to worship him. And we are saved to bring God glory and to inherit along with Christ and to do good works all going back to this covenant with Abraham. Abram complained about his situation to God. God can take hearing our concerns, as the book of Job and Psalms testifies. God entered into a covenant with Abram, even though he knew Abram and his descendants would be unable to keep it. And that's why only God passed between the animals. He was obligating himself to keep the covenant. So this made it an unconditional unilateral covenant. Abram and his descendants were merely the beneficiaries of these promises. This covenant and its future predictions were the answer to Abram's question, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Jesus entered into the new covenant with us, knowing the strength of retaining it rests in his power, not ours. This new covenant would be based on the body and blood of Jesus. The day would come when God the Son would bear the curse for our failure to live up to the demands of the covenant and he would shed his own blood so that we would receive the blessing promised on Abraham. God the Son would die, not because God failed to keep his covenant, but because we did. The birds of prey swept down on the carrion and Abram had to drive them away. We must seek to serve and pray without distraction. 
All of the things God said would happen, the slavery of Abram's descendants in a foreign country for four centuries, the exodus from that country with great riches, the punishment of the country that enslaved them, the future punishment of the Amorites, and Abram's own death at a good old age, 175, all happened as God said. We can trust God's word. It never leads us astray. God didn't judge the Amorites right away, but gave them opportunity to repent. But one day, the day of grace will be over and judgment will fall. God appeared in the fire and cloud, and this would be a symbol of God throughout Scripture, as we saw in Genesis chapter 9. God told Abram the borders of the land his descendants would possess and the nations whom they would dispossess to obtain it. God is in control of all places where people live. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 16. May God bless the study of his word.